Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 186 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Powering Through Lyme, an interview with Liza Blas and Ava Passiorelli. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, one of the highest compliments my mother would pay to anyone is that they were a good parent. And during the course of this interview, I just couldn't help but to think that Liza is one of the best mothers I've ever met. And Rich, what really surprised me about this podcast interview is that Ava's doctors didn't think Lyme disease, despite the fact that she was bitten by ticks two summers in a row, had a summer flu, anorexia, and hallucinations, all of which are symptoms of Lyme disease. Now, we named this episode Powering Through Lyme because whatever roadblocks are put before these two powerful women, they make their way through them. And that included Ava powering through our podcast, despite being the tender age of 15 and managing Tourette's syndrome. Together, these powerful women are going to get Ava to remission. And without further ado, we're excited to introduce Liza, Ava, and Powering Through Lyme. Hey, Ava and Liza, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. So we are really excited to have you folks on this podcast. We've been big fans as fellow podcasters, uh, Liza, of your podcast. And uh, we're just really excited to get into a conversation with the two of you. And in particular, uh, we want our audience to know that we want to talk about the parent and child experience with Lyme disease. Uh, we shared with you folks offline that Matt and I are finding it really frustrating that uh, we're, we're limited in the tools that we're offering to families when children have uh, child onset Lyme disease. And we're hoping you folks can give us some insight into some of the successes that you've had and what tools you've used there. So let's um, give our folks a context. Uh, Liza, where are you from? We are from Chicago. Yeah, so um, here in the Midwest, we have Lyme disease. And, and, and Liza, did you grow up in Chicago? I did. I grew up in the Chicago, in the suburbs. I did live in Maryland wow. for about eight years. Um, and then I moved back to Chicago. So, and, and Ava, you're uh, Liza's child, is that correct? Yes. And uh, is there any pressure with being the child of a podcaster? No. Uh, any other pressures with being Liza's daughter? No. I just have to behave because my brother doesn't behave sometimes. So if I'm good, then our family will look okay. All right, well, we know you're, you're going to do a great job with us. So um, Liza, tell us, um, tell us about your educational background. Um, my educational background, I am not a doctor <laughs> and I, um, you know, just, grew up in the suburbs and went to college at Iowa. I have been doing marketing, um, real estate, and most recently I was a commercial real estate broker. So I really am your business to business person. Um, I did make a huge transition in my life when my kids were both diagnosed with Lyme disease. Wow. I, I really had to pour my energy and, and my focus in healing my children. And that's kind of when I, I, I had to say goodbye to, to the real estate world and, and dive into different endeavors. So talk to, about, talk to us about your family dynamic, how many children you have, what your, what your uh, partnership relationship is. Give us, give us a context for your family. Huh. The context for our family. So I have a husband, Steve, um, and a son, John and Ava. Whoa. 
And we, we definitely on the outside might just look like a regular typical family, but the things that happen within the home are certainly atypical. You know, we, uh, my son also has chronic illness, but Ava is, you know, she has, her situation is more serious, but you know, my, I don't think it's more serious. It's just a bit more severe. Okay. True. But I think that there's things that other families don't, don't, don't do. We're on protocols. We have a lot of supplements. We have a lot of dietary restrictions. Um, We need to be able to be more flexible to change plans at the last minute. So um, there's just a lot of different dynamics that happen um, that I think a lot of other families don't, don't live with. All right, so let's pause there for a second and walk it back a little bit. So you and your husband decide that you're going to become parents. And what was your vision of parenting before God blessed you with the two children that you have? I, I, I really, I just thought it was like the American dream, right? You get married, you buy a house, you have children and, and they go to stay up there in sports and you participate at their events. And I don't think you participate at the events. That'd be kind of, that'd be kind of odd. To like play soccer with six-year-olds when you're 30? A little bit. Yes. <laughs> but I, we did Whoa. think, we did envision ourselves like going to soccer games and bringing the donuts. Um, no, we can't. And we don't, we don't eat donuts. It's not our life. But we'd still right. so, your, so your vision was you were going to have this sort of traditional Midwestern experience where you were going to have 2.5 children and you were going to be the soccer mom and, and your husband was going to be the soccer dad and you were going to join the PTA and do all the typical things you folks do in your Midwestern family experience. Exactly. So talk to us about how that, uh, that vision that you had for this traditional experience began to change after your first child was born. And then how did that change after your second child was born? It was immediate. It was from the very, very beginning, just a different path. So Ava was colic. Um, You know, she had some, I think now, now that here we are 15 years later, I think she probably had some gut issues. Um, She was sick a lot. She, um, fever was her big thing. She always had a fever. Um, and just an onset of anxiety that is so much more severe than children her age. Um, so just right out of the gates, it was different. Um, I, so, and then my son came three years later, um, and both of them, I could never articulate into words, they were just different. They had, I don't want to call it special needs. They both had special circumstances to to back in the day. I called them quirks. You know, my kids got a lot of quirks. He's not going to wear that shirt because that letter on the back is going to drive him crazy. She, she doesn't wear jeans. We've never bought a pair of jeans. Truly. Um, if it doesn't wear like it's just, it's a lot of sensory stuff. So, um, it was not, it was always atypical. So Liza, tell us as a kid growing up in the Midwest and ultimately going to college in Iowa, what you knew about ticks and tick diseases prior to your parenting experience. All I knew was, you know, the classic 
take, if you see a tick, make sure you take it off. You don't want to get Lyme. I had no idea what it was. Zero, zero idea. It, but it didn't sound good. And it, it sounded like it was very rare. So even as a highly educated woman who grew up in the Midwest, uh, and obviously there is ticks and there are Lyme disease, uh, people suffering from Lyme disease in, in the Midwest, you really knew nothing about it, right? You know nothing about ticks and nothing about Lyme disease other than if you get a tick, you better get it off and you better hope you don't get sick. Exactly. Okay. So you aren't taking any precautions to protect yourself from coming in contact with ticks. You aren't taking any precautions to protect your husband, for example, you and he weren't doing tick checks on one another before your children were born. You had nothing like that. Correct. I mean, my children were the kids that would jump into a pile of leaves. They would roll down hills, you know, they would run around barefoot. Like they just, they, they played outside um, all the time, you know, and I never checked ever for, and we had a dog. I never checked for a tick ever. So just by way of, again, context, um, have you and, or your husband been checked for Lyme disease? That's a very good question. We have not. Yes, you have. Well, I, I did a, I did a Western blot test when I was running a bunch of panels of other things, but we all know how that can turn out. But to this day, I just questioned my husband last week. I was like, I wonder if I should do an hygienics test because my history, and I've found this is very common in my network of parents who have children with Lyme have tick-borne illnesses. It's, it's not uncommon is what I'm trying to say. And so in my own life, I, um, have, I have Hashimoto. I literally fell apart when Ava was about five years old, fell apart. I had an early stage breast cancer. I, um, almost had a heart ablation. I had, um, the PVCs, I forget what it stands for, where your electrical nodes are all over the place. I've had serious foot pain. Um, I, I live this life of a chronic illness person too. Um, so I, I always question, you know, do, do I have Lyme? <laughs> so uh, one of the things that we've discovered through our podcast is that there are many people who have children with disabilities, particularly uh, families who have children who are uh, managing autism and, uh, and that many of those parents have Lyme disease and they have passed on the Lyme disease congenitally. In fact, uh, Dr. Descharme from uh, the West Coast uh, was actually an autism specialist and ultimately became a Lyme disease specialist because so many of the children that she were treating had parents who were exhibiting uh, signs of Lyme. And when she was testing the parents, she saw a, a, a tremendous connection in, in those communities. So Let's, let's focus on that for a little bit. How were your children developing and how was it atypical? And when did you start to see that they had their differences? So again, right off the bat, things were just off in the way, way of um, sensory, sound, light, just, I guess the word is just highly sensitive, right? Um, and, but you're still, you're still functioning. And you're still within normal range. Um, and I think as the years progress, specifically with Ava, her anxiety and her panic started to be concerning. 
So as young as maybe five or six years old, tummy felt her tummy would feel funny just out of the blue. And it would just be like a screeching panic. And um, so there are, even around that time, I started taking her to um, a Chinese medicine doctor. Um, and it, even as early as like six or seven, Ava started herbs. We already started this world of tinctures and herbs and things of that nature. And I just thought it was anxiety. Um, but then as she got older, you know, things did um, change into more OCD, eating disorder. No, I don't exactly believe that changed into OCD. I believe more so that it was always OCD and you just became more akin to recognizing it. Yeah. So, so talk to us about that, David. T tell us, tell us uh, what your life was like when you were five and six and you began to go to school. Um, did you notice that there were some differences between you and the, and the other children that you were meeting at school? Um, I suppose the main difference is that I'm me and they are them. And I suppose that's the same with everyone and I'm not necessarily suggesting that the difference between myself and the others was more prominent, but it was very difficult to notice, I suppose, the difference between myself and others and the thought patterns that I have and the differences between my thoughts and their own thoughts, because obviously I don't know their thoughts. Um, and I feel like when you're really young, it, you are you and you're always you, but when you're younger, I feel like you have a greater sense of who you are and your differences between, between yourself. It's I feel like when you're younger it's more easily recognized it's it's easier to recognize yourself and how you fit into a certain area if that makes sense because even though you're always being conditioned by society when you're younger you haven't been as conditioned as you are now so you can understand and somewhat recognize your own personal values and thoughts and morals and such forth when you're very young. So to that extent, I don't exactly think that I noticed any great differences between myself and my classmates. As in all honesty, I wasn't very focused on my classmates, not in like an overly selfish or egocentric way. It's more so that I was just young. And I guess I kind of was in my own world in terms of thoughts, but I think everyone is to some extent, but I think it's also mostly because I was so self-isolated. I didn't understand socializing really and I still don't to a certain extent but um I think that when I was younger I was selfish um in the sense that I wasn't aware of the people around me because I didn't know how to interact with them whoa so I suppose there was a great difference between myself and my classmates when I was younger I just never really noticed it because I wasn't exactly interacting with them. Whoa. So, so Ava, your mom said that she began to take you to see doctors, specifically um, uh, Eastern doctors when you were, when you were a very young child, what was that experience like? I suppose I thought of it as any other doctor, I guess. Um, when you're younger, especially whether or not it, the doctor and the what they practice isn't entirely relevant to you. It's more so whether or not your symptoms can be cured. Um, so in my case specifically, I suffered from a very severe constipation. Whoa! And um, that's I just wanted to get rid of that. Um, so I I suppose that's it. It yeah. was I. It felt like any other doctor. I just wanted to get rid of the pain. Also. 
when I was younger, I believe in spirits and such forth. I don't know how to describe this exactly, but um, it felt like I, we interpreted it as like, I don't know, interacting with spirits to some extent. I don't know if that's still true, but I felt like there were always other people around me and that they were always talking to me. And that might just be like psychosis and paranoia because I have those. But um, I remember talking to my therapist when I was around eight about that and asking if I guess other people talk to her, but she can't see them. I don't know if that, does that make sense? Whoa. It does, it does, it makes perfect sense. So Eliza, talk to me again from the parent standpoint now, how were how were uh, different events developing in your your daughter's health, and what professionals were you seeking to try to gain a diagnosis about um, what challenges she was facing? You know, I think at the time I wasn't looking for a diagnosis. I was really living in the daily grind of where's, how do we make these symptoms go away? Right. How do we make these symptoms go away? How do you veer us back to normalcy? We're we're veering off here. We need to come back to like this normal life that we, that we still want to have. And so it was really just like chasing symptoms. So I, I, yeah, Ava did have serious constipation and the doctors, the pediatrician just wanted to put her on Miralax every day. And I, and that's still happening. And I just didn't feel right about that. Um, and so I took her to a Chinese medicine doctor, um, and she put her on herbs and that's when we started doing supplements to calm Ava down magnesium. So my kids are both on magnesium. It's a big staple, the complex. And we just kind of started entering this world of supplements. Um, but I didn't recognize it at the time that my child is ill, that there is something seriously wrong. It happens so slowly over time and you're just adding things and then it's just another thing. And then, you know, you look back five years later and you're like, whoa, hello. Well, how did I not see that we're, we've been living this chronically ill lifestyle, like more than one person in our family. Um, it just, it just happens so slowly. Maybe my- so Liza, before we get to the the change of mindset from chasing symptoms to looking for a diagnosis. I, I have another question, and that is, when your when your friends were talking with you about their children and their parenting experience, did you find that your experience was different than theirs? And if you did, why didn't you think that you should be doing something other than just chasing symptoms? That's such a great question. I actually, at this time period, started creating a little bubble of particular friends that I hung out with and and kind of, and now in retrospect, their kids also had some like quirks, if you will. And you kind of create this safe little network, um, which at the time felt comfortable, but, you know, I definitely had over the years, I had to break free of that and get connected to the world to get answers for my children. But you do start to, I had created not even conscious of this kind of like a little safe bubble of like my kids and your kids, perfect ages. We all have our stuff going on. And and that is kind of how we function for a couple of years. So I Again, I'm not seeing it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of in denial, right? 
Um, but what seriously happened was what made the change was when Ava was going into sixth grade, she, I signed her up for a sleepaway camp in Northern Minnesota. And she went with her friend who was in our little bubble. And I thought it would be a great experience because she's entering middle school. I know she has anxiety. I know she has quirks, but this might be the thing she needs to just like mainstream, you know, like get, get into that mainstream way of life, I guess. Um, and she did come back with a summer flu. And I was told that a lot of kids come home from camp sick because, because they don't really sleep well and they're off doing things and they just come home exhausted. And I, I believed that that was our case that an Ava is a fever child and she came home with a nasty fever and she was in bed for three days and then it, it went away. And I do remember she wrote me a letter from camp that said, you're never going to believe what I found this morning, ah, a tick. And bad writing. It, my heart sank. Yeah. Now you have to understand the camp I sent her to, it's 10 days. It's 10 days before you get the letter. So when you start sending letters to your kids at Northern Minnesota, you send it a week okay. in advance so that your child gets to camp and can get a letter in two days. My heart sank. And I called the pediatrician. And of course I got this, I got this, um, conversation of if it wasn't attached for 24 hours, there's nothing to worry about. See if there's a bullseye rash. Um, I, you're perfectly fine. And I, I just kind of let it go, you know? I, so Liza, let's, let's talk about, um, Ava's educational experience up until that point, meaning how was she developing educationally and was she, uh, was she receiving any uh, educational services or have a 504 plan or anything other than the typical uh, educational experience? Um, great question. No accommodations. Ava is so incredibly bright this whole time. This is probably why I missed it no neurological problems put in the gifted programs and killing it, you know? And so I, we didn't, we were not in any special education at all. Were there any social issues that Ava was exhibiting in that window of time before she went to camp in Minnesota? Because I, I do want to focus on that with both of you in a minute, but I, I just want to focus on any social issues in that window prior to the camp experience. Yes, I think always Ava had a hard time socializing. And that is why she, even when she was in preschool, I put her in a more uh, academic curriculum preschool because that made her happy. You know, so she has always had few friends, but good friends. You know, she's really her, she's got some friends that she talks to today that she's known for years still, even as friends come and go, that's, that she's, she still holds on to those friendships. So she doesn't have a lot of friends, but the friends that she does have are, 
are really tight. But I will say socially, as she's gotten older, there has been more of a gap of social understanding. Um, so much so that we're actually in the process now of being wow. evaluated for um, Asperger's or of the spectrum. And I think it's just something that um, it's come up a lot, that it, it bothers her that she's missing social cues. Um, and it, I guess it's common as you get older to, to see these gaps more. So we're actually exploring that like as we speak. So Ava, talk to us about, uh, if you remember, going to camp in Minnesota and finding the tick that was biting you when you were away at camp. Um, well, I went to camp for two years. The first year I had five ticks. Um, so I didn't have much of a, why are you shaking your head? I'm I didn't know it was five. No, I'm not shaking. I'm not just, I'm not, I'm, well, I'm just, I didn't I know it was five. I took a vow to speak the truth. <laughs> well, but I had five ticks and I just took them off. Well, the first one I went to the nurse's office and she just took it off with her fingers, which in retrospect, maybe don't because the head can still be there. But she just told me that the next time I should just remove it myself. Um, and I remember um, at camp, they had these, I guess, variety shows where the staff would perform and the nurses had a segment um, a parody that they wrote of the lion sleeps tonight where uh, this is so funny well it's not funny i don't like thinking about it but it's funny to say um they had a section where they said it's just a wood tick you won't get lyme disease but a wood tick do carry lyme disease because they're a tick and lyme disease can be carried by almost anything and it was so i guess frustrating it's so odd they just treat lyme disease as if it's something fictional I guess just because it's difficult to treat because it's extremely complex given that it also affects individuals neurologically. And it's also somewhat difficult to spot because um, it kind of just shows up as predominantly fatigue um, and also sometimes fevers, but people that suffer greatly from Lyme disease or people who are like very greatly affected by it, myself included, are already immunodeficient. So it's difficult to try to point out um, what part is the Lyme disease and what part is just not natural, but typical for themselves. Um, same with the neurological effects, because whew, like I have clinical paranoia and psychosis, anxiety, et cetera, um, and also depression. So when I was extremely fatigued, I just attributed it to my depression, even though now that I'm treated for Lyme disease, I'm not that fatigued anymore. So it's difficult to spot what symptoms coincide with Lyme disease. Um, so yeah, they treat it like Lyme disease is fictional. And that was extremely frustrating, especially now that I've like, overcome Lyme disease, how people say, oh, well, you're not going to get it. No, they could. And it kind of silences the people that have actually had it when they treat it like it's fictional. That was so Ava, yeah. let's talk about, let's talk about what you knew about ticks and Lyme disease before you went to camp in Minnesota. Did you know anything about ticks and did you know anything about Lyme disease before you took your first trip to camp in Minnesota? Um, I did know a little bit. Um, I remember the, I didn't, I didn't know too much, but I just had a general awareness of Lyme disease. I remember one of the counselors talking about, oh yeah, if you get Lyme disease, it's fine. It's just fatigue and it lasts six months. And I mean, the counselor was like 16, but it still bugs me. That's a good pun. But 
I uh, I wish that they talked about it. <laughs> so you said you found five ticks on you that first year. Did you find five ticks biting you at one time, or did you find five different ticks biting you at five different times? The latter. So how did you find these ticks? Meaning, did you see them on you? Did you feel them? How did you, and, and, um, and how did you know that they were ticks? Uh, I just saw them and I didn't look like anything else. Uh, so I assumed that they were tick. I don't, I haven't like seen bugs that look like, tick. I feel like ticks have like a very distinct look, even though there are many different types of them. They're still identifiable as a tick. Also the fact that they weren't crawling and they were just there. Whoa. So now Ava, you heard your mom say that you had sent her a letter indicating you had been bitten by a tick. Why did you send the letter to your mom when you were bitten by the tick the one time and not all the other times? See, the thing is, I have absolutely no recollection of ever doing that because the only letter that I can recall sending was the one about when I failed my swim test and when I wanted to leave. And they had really cool drawings on them and I want to see those again. Okay, so I, I think they would be more memorable letters as well, rather than just telling your mom you were bitten by a, by a bug. Um, you know, failing the swim test and uh, wanting to leave are certainly more memorable uh, letters to have written. Yeah, I don't know why so, I got back to that camp. So, Ava, you said that you went to, to camp two years in a row. Um, did you get bitten by ticks the second year you went to yeah. camp? How many times the second year? I think I the first year I counted and kept... And I kept track of each of them. The second year, I honestly can't quite recall the amount of times because it kind of became a normalcy to some extent. Like people were finding ticks on them all the time. We did tick checks and such forth. So it wasn't anything too notable, except for the first few times, my first year. Whoa. Can you share with us what you were taught about tick checks? Meaning how would you do a tick check based on the way you were trained at camp? Sweaty areas, underarm, like belly button, uh, under or between the knee and those areas, also checking the scalp and behind the ears. Whoa. So, and was that something you were trained to do every day while you were at camp? Yes, twice a day or sometimes three times. I did them like three times, but whoa, the twice was the minimal. <laughs> so, who taught the campers how to do a tick check and what to do after you found a tick? Counselors, and they said to either go to the nurse but then you go to the nurse and they just say to remove it yourself. Whoa. Okay. So Liza, uh, now that you're getting all this insight into uh, your, your child's uh, tick bite experience over that two year window of camping, um, tell, us, um, tell us what you would have done differently had you been aware either from the camp staff or the camp nursing staff that your daughter was being bitten by ticks repeatedly. I mean, I, first of all, I would never send, I would have never sent her the second year um, or even the first year, truly, if I would have known. And I just wish they even had antibiotics up there even. I mean, you know, just put them on the doxy um, at least at the bare minimum um, would have, why, why is that like, not just even like housed there, you know, at the nurse's office. So um, I would have insisted that my daughter just be put on an antibiotic or just, I'll just come pick her up. Really? I'll pick her up. It's not allowed. Even if you break your leg, you're not allowed to go back. 
Well, I mean, parents can always take their kids That's not out. Allowed. So, well, this is how they condition them, clearly. Is no, it's literally not allowed. So, um, Ava, let me let me just ask your mom a couple more questions, just sort of parent to parent, and then Matt is going to sort of begin to roll in. We're gonna we're gonna start having a larger conversation. But, um, so, um, how do you feel, Liza, knowing that the camp was aware enough of the tick problem to train the campers on how to do tick checks? And it sounds like they were doing it pretty well, much to my surprise but they weren't conveying the information to parents that it was a risk and that they weren't conveying to parents that the risk was resulting in them finding ticks on them repeatedly. Now, um, you know, before your daughter is uh, diagnosed with Lyme disease. Honestly, to be perfectly honest with you, it's a crime. It's a crime. I'm holding it together right now. Like I carry so much grief. And to hear, like, I, I know she had the one tick and I know she got bit the second time. Cause that's when, you know, we really had to, we really had to figure something out, but it's a crime. I mean, there needs to be, you need to sign a cut. They need to lay it all out that this is happening. These are the risks. Here's our procedure and sign this document. Like you are made aware. Um, I think it's a crime. So which year um, which year at camp or which camping experience did your daughter come back with the flu that resulted in the, in, in the, the visit to the doctor after she had come home? May I answer, please? Yes, Ava, please. Thank you. Um, the first year I came back with a fever. The second year, uh, I had a psychotic episode when I got home um, because I saw a ghost. I was very asleep. And this is why it was difficult to figure out whether it was Lyme disease or mental illness because I was extremely mentally ill and in all honesty, unstable. And I don't mean that in a derogatory or self-deprecating way. It's just, I was unstable. And that's why we couldn't really, well, we could spot the Lyme. Well, I don't know how to, cause we were focused on the mental health. And that's why we hadn't really considered Lyme disease for a while. It's just when the mental health um, resulted in, I guess, physical symptoms and such forth that it became like, well, maybe there is a physical illness that she also has, but then I also had anorexia. So it's difficult to kind of figure out what physical symptoms were a result of malnutrition and which ones were a result of Lyme disease. And so the case in general is extremely complicated. Well, it is, uh, Ava, but uh, one of the things that you may want to take into consideration is that uh, neurological Lyme will cause people to suffer mental illness. And we've interviewed many people on this podcast who have suffered from anorexia and other types of eating disorders from Lyme disease. So um, all of those symptoms may have been independent and may have made it difficult for you to come to a diagnosis of Lyme disease, or, or all of those symptoms may have been a result of the Lyme disease that was then undiagnosed. So it's not always easy to determine whether the chicken came first or the egg came first, but in it sounds a lot like to me, and I'll let Matt make his observations uh, based on interviewing over um, almost 200 chronic Lyme disease um, uh, people that uh, your symptoms are very typical Lyme disease symptoms. Yes. Yeah. So Rich, I'm just going to jump in for a second there. I'm sorry to interrupt, but for, for Ava and, and for Liza, I myself had experienced hallucinations and, and had seen things that weren't there. 
And our last guest as well described some really vivid visualizations that, were, that weren't real. He'd be in class, he'd be around family and friends and see things and look at, look at his, his family members and say, you don't see that person over there. So although that I can understand why doctors may get confused between mental illness and Lyme disease, there is a major correlation between Lyme disease, hallucinations, mental health, and even anorexia that many doctors really need to get brushed up on because it could lead to a quicker diagnosis. And um, I think that's something that, that we should really bring to light in, on this podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, it, you know, I know a lot of people get diagnosed in a different way. Everyone has a different journey of how you got there. We only got to Lyme disease because of hallucinations. That is how we got to Lyme. Ava, I'm, I'd still like to follow up. So can you give us an example of, if you're comfortable sharing, one of the hallucinations you experienced, what that was like, what you saw, and how then you interacted with your, your mom and your friends and your family that were around at that time? Um, so should I describe their appearance or how they interacted with me? Uh, both, please. Okay, so beginning with appearance, um, they're very tall figures and somewhat slender. You can't exactly decipher um, the difference between their legs. So it's more or less just a solid mass. And um, again, their arms are very thin, their fingers are very long and very sharp. And <laughs> you can't exactly decipher much about their face. I think they do have faces, but it's difficult to figure it out. And their hair, it's kind of smoky, I suppose. They resemble fog and it's difficult to point out the crisp differences between them and the surroundings because they resemble fog to a really great extent. Um, they're entirely dark, uh, I suppose. You could just call them shadow figures. I don't know. That's like the very simple explanation of them. But if you look really close at them, you can see how they're formed and you can see lines. I don't know how lines, you like when someone has no flesh, like in Attack on Titan, like the, the muscles, that's what it looks like, like the lines. Does that make sense? It doesn't. And, it, it doesn't. And is it, is it, the first time you saw one of these, was it scary? Walk us through what was it like for you emotionally to, to be seeing something that you realized nobody else saw? I think I saw them for a long time. I can't exactly recall ever seeing them for a first time. I think when I was really young, I would see them just in my room and they would stand there. But when I was around 12, maybe 13, and up to 14 until I was treated for Lyme. Um, they would attack me and stab me. And yeah. Whoa. And what was that like for you, Liza? Now watching Ava go through this, is, was this something that was physically obvious? It was horrifying. It's, a, it's, it's horrifying. And because um, you, you don't, you know, she can't, she can explain what's happening now, but in that moment, they're not going to, they can't explain what's happening. It sounded like, I, I don't know how to ex explain this, except this, it sounded like someone was screaming bloody murder. It's, it's terrifying pain. Like it sounded like somebody was like hurting her. Um, and she, that's how she really felt. Like, and when it was over, when enough time passed, I'm like, what's happening? And she said, like, they ripped open my head. They, 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 they ripped, like, you know, these entities are physically attacking her. 
So Liza, how long did this begin to develop after she came back from camp the first year with the tick bite? The first year she had the flu, that summer flu, and she just started going downhill with her mental health, higher anxiety, um, more OCD. Um, but at that time she was not medicated and, um, I don't even know if she was in therapy. We just, she was doing her best to manage it herself. I have, we do, I have another child who also has a whole set of issues and he was taking up more space, his, you know, his behavior. And so she really did try her best to like, um, you know, not, not, um, talk about it. And, and then she, she went away to camp the second time and was bit again. And then when she came back a second time, she literally had a psychotic episode. And that's when I said, we, you need to see a therapist. We have to go. She also, from the time she got weighed in April to do camp forms to the time she got home and I got her weighed. Well, I got her weighed, you know, after I knew, like, I was like, you're really skinny. She had lost 17 pounds in like five months. And she's a small person. She's only I'm four ten. She's four ten and a half, <laughs> and I mean to that lose mean seventeen pounds in, and that really pissed me off with the camp because they're supposed to be doing weekly checks. They are supposed to be checking them physically, temperature checks, and how are you not recording her weight is plummeting. So um, I brought her to a therapist. And I am the therapist said to me offline, and a lot of therapists don't do this, but this woman called me offline and she said, your daughter needs medication. She's like, this is very serious. She, this is a very serious situation. So that's when we started um, uncovering what's happening. And at the end of the day, um, Ava went to a partial hospitalization program specific for an eating disorder that is tied to OCD because there's different kinds of eating disorders, right? Hers was OCD and body dysmorphia. But she literally thought, you know, something about her body. And that was the driving force for the restriction. Um, and we got her medicated. Um, and she did that program like three months, maybe. Um, and things were seemed okay. And then everything just kind of stopped working. The medication stopped working. Um, the hallucinate nightmares. She was having horrific nightmares and like nightmares within a nightmare within a nightmare. It was just very complex. And she was waking up with PTSD every day from the night before. So then she didn't want to sleep. It, and we just got in this vicious cycle. So I would have to say, and that just got worse. They just got worse. And I would get her, get her evaluated by doctors, different psychiatrists. And then, um, I took her to one of the top university hospitals in Chicago, and they did a full evaluation because I thought she might 
have bipolar or schizophrenia, schizophrenia or schizoaffective. And I just wanted her to have the right treatment. If you don't have the right diagnosis, they, they put you on the wrong medication and you're doing even the wrong therapies, right? So this doctor at this top university told me that my daughter had high anxiety. You know, and my kids sitting here. I mean, they weren't wrong, but I think it was a little more than that. Yeah. So essentially they're saying anxiety was the cause of hallucinations and all of, the, all of these other real things that were happening. They reduced down to anxiety. Yes. Yes, they did. Ava, what was that like for you? I just, I just am curious from your perspective, did you believe that these hallucinations were real because they were so common and frequent in your life? I think, well, it depends on how you define real, I guess. Um, because in all honesty, it isn't exactly relevant whether or not they are real. I think when you say real, I think it kind of means like, can other people see them essentially? But they were real and they were real to me. And I know that other people can't see them and other people can't perceive them. So they're not real to other people, but it's not exactly relevant. I feel like people I feel like a lot of times someone might have a nightmare, for instance, if people say, oh, no, it's fine. It's not real. But the, it, that doesn't matter because it still affects the person all the same. And obviously, if you get killed in a nightmare, you're not actually dead. But if you get killed in real life, it hurts more, I guess. It doesn't really matter what the physical pain is, though, because however you perceive the pain or however you perceive the damage, that's how you're going to live and that's how you're going to react. So I think when people say, like, how did I've heard some... I've heard people who like don't have hallucinations um, say like, oh yeah, my aunt has schizophrenia. I don't have schizophrenia, but they're like, well, my, this person has hallucinations or schizophrenia. And um, like, she knew they weren't real. Like that's not exactly it. She understood that maybe other people can't see them because of how other people react when she reacted to them, but they're real to her and how they affect her is still valid, whether or not they, other people react to them the same in the same manner. Ava, that's a really powerful and, and informative answer. So thank you for that. So really, I think what you're saying is, although I can't see them and your mom can't see them, the, the effect that they have on you is the same as if somebody were stabbing you, right? You're feeling that same pain as if somebody were there stabbing you in front of your mom and your mom could see that person, I think is what you're saying. Well, yeah. Walk us through the, the portion of this when you're in this part-time clinic to help with your, your OCD and your anorexia. I don't think I was admitted against my will. It like I didn't want to go. I but I I I I just wanted it to go away, I guess. And I think that to some extent the anorexia developed uh out of a means of distraction. And I'm not saying that I did it on purpose or something, but I do think subconsciously my brain wanted to attempt to focus on something else. And I feel like that's another thing that OCD does um in general where um the rituals and compulsions are more or less serve as a distraction to one's deeper perceptions of themselves. Not that, obviously not that people can control the thoughts and intrusive thoughts that they have, but I think subconsciously that the brain does do that to some extent. And with the anorexia, I thought it was normal. I remember um, it maybe in seventh grade, I like, I, it was in seventh grade when it got really bad, but especially over the summer, like my food was very restricted and I thought that it was normal, I guess. Cause I feel like, especially 
women Ugh, no I'm kidding but I feel like a lot of them it's like oh I they look so fat obviously nothing wrong with being overweight if it's if you're healthy but like it's just like there's so much about I feel like being like feminine presenting and being a woman that kind of normalizes eating disorders and the stigma around it and like the, the symptoms and such forth as being normal but I think that people need to bring more awareness. It's like restricting food and having that mindset that one being fat is inherently bad. It's not. Um, but also that like restricting food is show self-control is also a completely wrong mindset. And I feel like society really ingrained that into like, obviously men can have eating disorders, but I feel like it's very heavily enforced on women. Um, and it's more notably enforced on women. Obviously, men struggle with eating disorders as well, uh, and that is a great problem. But just from like my personal perspective as a woman, society really pushed that narrative, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think what made me kind of realize that it was an eating disorder and not just, I don't know, not eating, I guess. Uh, I was listening to this one YouTuber talk about her experience with anorexia because she made a song and I, I didn't self-diagnose, but I did experience like every single symptom that she listed in the song and they were very specific. And then I, that's kind of when I realized, okay, maybe this isn't normal. So that's, I guess, maybe, maybe when I kind of reached out to some extent and I didn't, Sorry if I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but like before that, um, well, I remember, like, first of all, body checking a lot. I remember like not eating breakfast and then water skiing one day when we were uh, on vacation. And I forgot what the, what catalyzed the thought, but I had this thought like, well, I can't tell my parents about this because that'll stop my plan. Not like, not suicide, just, um, a plan of restrictive eating and slowly bringing down the amount of food that I consume. So I, I guess I never really thought about it as a disorder. I just thought about it as something that I do, but it got to the point where it, that's all I thought about was how much food I could restrict, uh, how much I could stop. Um, oh, compulsive exercise also like excessive exercise, how often I get exercise. Um, when I could exercise and where I could sneak in exercise. So it really con consumed my thoughts. And that's why I, I guess, agreed to go to that treatment was because I, I just wanted to be able to think about other things, I guess. So Liza, you were, you were uh -huh. managing symptoms oh. and managing them pretty well all the way until the time that your daughter goes to camp the first time. And now her symptoms are really taking off after she comes back with that tick bite. Are you now moving from symptom management to diagnostic uh, goals or are you still trying to manage symptoms despite them really being very different uh, symptoms? No, we have moved into what is the diagnosis. So when, like around that time when they said, she has really high anxiety. Oh. I was already in what is our diagnosis? What is happening? Um, and at the same time, you know, my son was presenting with similar 
type, like similar, but different. I similar in the fact unmanageable and mysterious, but in completely different ways. But um, it got to a point with my daughter that this is terrifying. Nobody can live like this. We need help. And um, the program that she was in with the eating disorder was necessary. I would almost say in some weird way, the eating disorder saved her because physical weight is such a benchmark of like, you need help. And we were able to, that's when we first started getting her medicated and we you know, had this understanding. That's when they finally, okay, I feel like, whew, it depends on who you ask. I feel like some people say that OCD is a, like makes someone neurodivergent. It depends on the person you ask. But I feel like I am so happy that I went there because I've been exhibiting like symptoms and behaviors attributed to OCD for so long. And I am so happy that they finally recognized that it is OCD because whew, I remember when I was five, I would like wake up at 9 p.m. and reorganize all of my dolls because it didn't look right. And like, I feel like that was an example, but everyone just treated it as perfectionism instead of anything more severe, I guess. And I, whew, I, I, I'm happy that I got to go there and they helped me with that. In all honesty, I don't think that they were entirely effective in whew, kind of, I don't know, stopping my OCD or healing it because my OCD is tied more so to Tourette's. So it's more difficult to, not more difficult, but there's a different way of reframing the thoughts because there are different types of OCD. So the type that they were attempting to treat, I didn't really have, but it still helped a lot with my anorexia and I'm better now. So for that, I am very grateful. And it also set us on the path to finding a psychiatrist and such forth. So that's good. Whoa. So yeah. Liza, when you were, when you were, trying to find doctors and you were trying to find uh, clinical settings for your, for your daughter. And then I guess your son to be diagnosed, uh, where you ask questions about their medical background and their medical histories. And did any of those questions include tick bites or Lyme disease symptoms? No, never, never. In fact, um, you know, I had taken Ava to a Chinese medicine doctor back when she was like seven, right? Because of her onset anxiety. And I actually even took Ava back to her. And I said, she is having such hallucination psychosis. What, what do you recommend? And um, she said, we'll try some of these herbs. And even that doctor, did not tell me you should look into Lyme. And um, when I did start investigating Lyme, it was from a mother who knew another mother who had a daughter that presented similar to Ava. And I mean, that's why it's so important to share your story. This is a horrifying family situation that I had to start talking about. I had to start saying, my kids are like seriously having problems. Do you know, do you have a psychiatrist to recommend? Do you know of any good programs? You really have to start sharing your story. And when I did, 
that's when a mother told me. She said she actually was at a holiday party and of December, 2019. And she said, Eliza, I don't mean to throw you down a rabbit hole, but have you looked into Lyme disease? And when she said it to me, there was like, I got like the pit of my stomach, like kind of felt I had that sick feeling. So Eliza, Uh, give us a context. How long after the tick bite from the first year at camp were all of these events developing before the um, before the friend or, or person yeah. at a holiday party says to you, hey, what about Lyme? Two years because she got hit with the five ticks the summer before sixth grade. She got hit again the oh. summer before seventh grade. Yes. Yes. Oh. Seventh grade. She was in that program for an eating disorder. Yay. And then in eighth grade, things just got worse. Things just got worse. Um, Medication stopped working. And this is when I really had to figure out what was going on. Um, So that's what I, in eighth grade is when, when she was in eighth grade, I started being very vocal about our story. It's not a secret. Yes. Both of my kids are medicated. Everyone, we are in therapy. Do you have another therapist? Like I'm really trying to get movement for my children, but it's all in the world of mental health. Nothing was in the world of pain or even chronic fatigue. I mean, Ava was fatigued, but we always attributed it to her anxiety and depression, which can make you fatigued. So then it was um, when she was in eighth grade um, in December of 2019 is when a friend told me to look into Lyme. And And so the person I called about getting a Lyme test was that Chinese medicine doctor. I said, hey, let's rule out Lyme disease. And she said, yes, we need to do that. I have the hygienics test in my back office. Take one, you have to like, whatever. Hygienics test in her office. So to rule out Lyme disease. And I got that from a friend, but to put it, you know, that made me aware. So we took the hygienics test to rule out Lyme disease. We're ruling things out, right? We're, I'm taking her for this test and, and the Lyme disease test, um, you know, it took maybe two weeks. I was actually out of town with my husband. Um, and the doctor called me on a Sunday. And she told me while I was out of town. Um, And it just, that's like, you know, it's like that defining moment where you're like, oh my God, my baby has Lyme disease and co-infections. And how do we get started? Um, and, and And all that. And then it was just a different journey. You know, it wasn't the start or the end of anything. It was just the next chapter, really. So what were the recommended treatments for the Lyme disease that she's now diagnosed with? And did you have any questions about whether or not um, you should be treating with a different type of doctor? May I? You can. Yeah, do you want Um, to say something? Yes. So the Chinese medicine doctor first proposed a plan that had various levels and organizations of antibiotics. 
we also saw an infectious disease doctor. And uh, I don't mean to accuse anyone, but I think that what you define as medical school could be subjective because I don't think he went to We sat down in the office and he was like, so why, what do you want? And I was like, um, normal, please. And he said, you don't have Lyme. But the test, and he said, no, that's the preliminary one. You have, there's another test. Hey, why are there multiple tests? I think you're just trying to make an excuse to not treat me because the case is complicated and it's difficult for insurance or something. The insurance is a topic for another time. But um, whoo, he was very dumb. Well, that's that's a little harsh. Very stupid. So, um, and- How about we say limited. Limited. Okay. Yeah. I didn't like him though. That was a terrible, terrible appointment. And he said, oh, you don't want Lyme. No, I don't. <laughs> That's why I want to get rid of it, sir. You can't just say, no, I don't like that word. So I'm just not good. I can't just say, I actually don't have brown hair. Well, I, I tried it recently, but I actually not, I actually don't have that. So um, I'm going to continue letting it affect me until it gets worse and I die. He did say, um, so I, I did take her to the, to the infectious disease doctor too. Um, but in order to get a referral to an infectious disease doctor. I had to go through my pediatrician. Okay. So I can't, I can't get a name. I can, an infectious disease doctor will not see you where I live until you go through your pediatrician. So then I had to have Ava do the Western blot test and she was positive for the screening. And then they did like another one and then she didn't have enough bands. And he literally said to her, I still have the band. He said, I... you don't have Lyme. You don't want that. That's not good. You don't want that. So this is, it was a defining moment though, between Ava and I, where I was like, we're not going to go that route. We need, we're, we're got, we're got to stick with the Chinese medicine doctor for now. That route we, we can't do that. We're not getting recognized. And it was a good lesson early in the game. And we didn't waste a lot of time there. And this was after the hygienics test? Yes. So you had an hygienics test, which is far better than the traditional lab core, quest, et cetera, testing. And then your pediatrician and the infectious disease doctor said you don't have Lyme. That is correct. Yeah. So Ava, how... You know, as, as a, a child, and I, I was the same way, you think you go to a specialist who is trained in a specific area to help you. What was it like for you to go to an infectious disease specialist where Lyme is an infectious disease who wouldn't recognize or help you with a, an illness you clearly had? I mean, I, you, you shared with us your feelings earlier, but was that, was that eye-opening to you that these doctors aren't all that you build them up to be in your head? I suppose so. Um... I never, I don't, I mean, well, I don't know if this, this might not be entirely relevant, but my grandfather is a doctor and a lot of like my relatives on that side of the family are also nurses and doctors. So I never exactly had like an idealized, an idealized version of doctors. They were always just humans who had jobs to do. And that means that I can make fun of them when they're blatantly wrong. And 
it's another this is a bit off topic but something about not having enough bands is so odd to me because it really doesn't matter because the number of bands that you have if it's affecting you very gravely you still have Lyme disease especially if you're already immunocompromised it's going to affect you in the same manner that it would for someone else and that's the thing about um, like typical medicine it they always assume that everyone is exactly the same and they don't consider that other people are different wiring different biological like yeah wiring and such forth so they treat everyone the same when people's cases are more complicated than that because they're so used to having a routine manner of helping people making money but um it just i wish that they could understand that people are different individuals and diseases because they deal with bio biology and chemistry and everyone's is different it, diseases are going to affect people differently Whoa. So Liza, as, as a parent, I'm, I'm cringing listening to the story because you have, uh, you, you have these two little people that you're charged with keeping safe and protecting. You're managing their, their symptoms and you're living a pretty typical, you know, Midwestern uh, two and a half child experience with your husband. Then Liza goes off the camp. She gets unfortunately neglected at camp and I'm sorry, um, Ava. Ava goes off the camp and I uh, see, I'm so, I'm so upset. I'm calling, I'm mixing up your names now. Um, Ava goes off the camp. She gets neglected at camp and her, her symptoms accelerate. You then bring her to doctors to try to get her diagnosed. They don't diagnose her. Her symptoms are continuing to accelerate. You finally get a diagnosis or you should have a diagnosis with a definitive test and she's still not being treated and her symptoms are continuing to accelerate. So it's like watching this train, you know, fall off the tracks repeatedly is just, just a painful, um, as a parent, as a, a painful story for me to listen to, because there were just so many different places where, where um, Ava could have been protected. Uh, and all of these other people who, who you were reaching out to and, and asking for help were just failing her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's so, and there's, I mean, it's such a, it's sad that it's like a common story with parents that have kids with Lyme. And, um, I just at this time, what I just needed to find the right treatment. Like I get very, during this time in our lives, I just had to get very focused on that one thing. Um, because, if I didn't have my own focus, I might just fall down my own rabbit hole of despair. And you can't do that because you have to be the rock. You know, they need to know that someone's driving the bus. So, you know, you just have to empower yourself. And um, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of books. I'm trying to take it all in. Um, and I did I think I might, it might've been like a tick boot camp episode where I learned very early from media that be prepared to be invalidated. Some, I must've been from your podcast, maybe even like the Dr. Rawls book. Like it was a theme of people saying this. So when, when we were in that situation with the infectious disease doctor, I think I even said to her, now don't be surprised if he says something we don't want to hear, like I remember prepping her and he did invalidate us. And then I knew I had to take 
Mayo Clinic off the table. I had to take certain institutions off the table. So it did save me a lot of time to be like, next, check that off the list. We're not going down this route. I don't like that we had to pay him for that. Well, I guess we didn't. Insurance did. Yeah, but it, it is, it, it just, you just have to move quickly, you know, because I, I got to figure a ton out. Like we have time, we've wasted so much time. Right. And, and she'd only gone two years or I don't even know how long I know that there's people that go 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Um, and I, I just, I needed to make things happen quickly. So I did work with the Chinese medicine doctor who had the hygienics test in her closet and she all along, <laughs> all along. and um, she said, there's two ways we can go. We can go the herbal route or we can go the antibiotic route. What are your thoughts? She's asking me and I'm like, well, what do, what do we really need? Like, what, what is this screaming for you? And she's like, well, based on the test, I think she needs IV Rosefin. I might be able to help you get it in Wisconsin. We explored that. It didn't pan out. So we did start with antibiotics, um, which did not, which, which did not, she did not respond to. Was it oral antibiotics because you couldn't get the IV or were you able to mm -hmm. successfully get the IV antibiotics? We did not at this time, we did not have IV antibiotics. She was convinced Whoa. based on Ava's symptoms, it had crossed the brain barrier. We got to get past the brain barrier. Um, so she put us on like a really high dose of amoxicillin, which was, and I guess she chose amoxicillin because you could go higher. I don't really even know, but we, we started with that and, um, some supplements and drainage stuff, you know, to get the lymphatic system moving. Um, and, and then it just kind of like changed, you know, we were pulsing with antiparasitics. Um, you know, it's just kind of a rotation of medications and herbs. Well, talk to us about the lymphatic system and the drainage. What, how did the Chinese doctor explain that to you and why that's important when treating Lyme disease? So really what she explained to us was, um, before we even start the antibiotics, we've got to like open up your path at, your pathways. So she started Ava on glutathione um, and just some other things. And it was like, she actually told us, you might even experience a Herx reaction just from opening up, just from the detox. She called it the detox stage. And we needed to do like two weeks of detox. Some people go more. So she definitely phased us out. I mean, she, she is Lyme literate. Um, um, and so that, that's basically what our knowledge was. Oh, we were doing sauna, remember? Um, which Ava did not like and still does not like. like um, we were doing warm. we were doing Epsom salt baths, which we still do here and there. Well, we should be doing. I we should be doing more. Yes, it's you know, it's kind of those those were our go tos at that time. So, so Ava, why didn't you like the the infrared sauna? Because certain people can't tolerate it because of the heat, and they're very heat sensitive. And other people have really experienced great benefit from it. So what was your experience when you, the first time you went into the sauna? Um, 
I suppose it's kind of a, a sensory thing, I guess. And it makes me feel, I get like entitled or spoiled. I just didn't like how it felt. I didn't, it, 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 it I felt like I, it was, everywhere. I didn't like, I felt too, I had two layers of skin and then you peel them all off. And I didn't like it. So it's very uncomfortable. And, and, and Ava, how did it feel when you started these antibiotics? Because you, you, you know, you're, many people go through Herxheimer reactions when they take these antibiotics. Did you start to feel even worse when you started the treatment with the Chinese medicine doctor? I think, whew, yes. Um, the thing with Herxheimer reactions is people try to say, oh yeah, that's good. Cause that means it's working but then you'll have a Herxheimer reaction. It's like, oh no, you're getting worse. And I think that the difference between having a Herxheimer reaction and just getting worse um, is when you can see the benefits and the improvements being made due to the medicine. Uh, I can't remember anything getting better on the medicine. So I think I might've just been getting worse, but I don't know really. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. And, and it's a lot of oral antibiotics and it's, it's a lot at once. So it sounds like you may have introduced IV antibiotics at some point into your healing journey as well. So when you weren't getting better from all these oral therapies, what did you guys do next? Um, Fire. So what ended up happening was, you know, Ava was in treatment really during the pandemic. Um, so she, before the pandemic hit, all of, and she was starting Lyme treatment, I would have to like pick her up early from school. Like she would, now the fatigue is kicking in. Now she's experiencing lightheadedness. Well, I had psychotic episodes at school. Yes. And her psychosis was actually getting worse. So it was kind of good timing from when we were being treated, but then everything shut down. And as everybody was at home trying to get adjusted, we were in the throes of, I was in the throes of treatment with two kids. Um, and so that's what we did during the pandemic. When school started again in the fall, Ava was still not doing well. And I think we fell into that case of too much antibiotics wreaked havoc on her gut. And we needed to get off the antibiotic train and we really needed to heal. And then I had listened to another podcast of someone that had done whole body hyperthermia. And I reached out to Lyme and cancer services. mm -hmm, Yep. With Michelle. And she actually helped me navigate that experience. So we ended up going the Mexico route and we were at Santa Vive. And I think the part that really had us needing to go to whole body hyperthermia is I needed to lighten her load. Like I had this instinct of we, we just need to blast some of this. We need to bust the biofilms. We need to like, I need to give her a chance to recover and I'm not going to be able to do that unless I like lighten her load. And so that's what we did. Was there any 
Was there ever any symptom relief from the oral antibiotics or was it just getting worse and worse and worse? The only thing we did see relief from was probably Alinea. And with that, we started with the full moon and new moon taking that anti-parasite. And I think Mepron, I think she, we did see relief with treating parasites and maybe removing that layer. Um, there was some relief there, but as far as Lyme, no, there was no relief. So the orals were effective at treating a lot of the parasites, but not necessarily the Lyme or other tick-borne infections. Correct. So walk us through what it was like, because we're, we're huge fans of Michelle McKeon and Lyme and Cancer Services. So walk us through what that was like, reaching out to her as a mom, looking for help. And we, what she does is really walk you through the, through the process of what hyperthermia is and coaching you to make the right decisions and guiding you. So just talk to us about that process. Sure. So I just reached out to her um, because I had heard her on a podcast and um, we set up a call. I talked about my two kids and um, she said, yeah, I really think that hyperthermia could certainly help Um, with their ages. It's going to be a little tricky. So she just kind of helped me. She just navigated me through the process. So I had to fill out paperwork for two places. I think there's three places where you can get whole body hyperthermia, but just because of their ages, we were limited to two. And, um, Sanaviv got back to us first. And, um, and so I, and I just started going down that route also, um, it seemed like they had a bit more assistance for co-infections. Um, I liked that they were closer and honestly, it was the data winner. And I was like, I'd rather take her to Mexico (laughs) than than Germany. It's closer. Um, and I did talk to a lot of people, you know, there's a, there's a whole separate Facebook group on that. But another thing that Michelle brought to my attention, I had never heard this before from, from my Chinese medicine doctor or my integrative doctor, LLMD in Chicago, Michelle brought mold to my attention. And that's like a whole other chapter. Um, and, and, um, so, so I did go to Santa Aviv with Ava and right before we left, I did do a lot of mold testing on my home and on my children and not just mold for my children, but biotoxins. And of course we, you know, had to deal with both the home environment and the toxin load. So, um, so we, so we did, so that was our experience with Michelle. We went to Santa Aviv. We did the two week process. It was very healing. Um, Lyme is traumatic, you know, and also your, the thing about children that is especially sad is it's really impacting their brains at such important milestones of brain development. So, you know, to, to heal from that is, is challenging too. Um, and there's just so much trauma. So that was really important to do the Santa Aviv experience. But when we got home, we had a lot of work to do 
on the home and new protocols for mold and biotoxins. Did they do anything else in Sanofi? Did they do IV antibiotics? Were there, you know, ozone, hyperbaric oxygen, anything like that that they did to complement hyperthermia? Yes, all of it, all of it. So um, she did hyperbaric chamber a few times. She said she did ozone. They're kind of spaced out. There's oxygenation days and then there's detox days. And then they use tools um, depending on what day it is before or after hyperthermia. She also did a ton of energy work there. She did the Rife machine. Um, and also a lot of therapy. Like I thought it was so valuable from a therapeutic standpoint of like healing also this this family dynamic that exists with mothers and children with Lyme and kind of healing that too, because it's so necessary in order to recover. Um, what else do they do at Santa Viv? Um, oh, oh, she Karen. did. So I forgot what her practice. Yeah, that's. Um, we did, um, well, so we did like energetic work, kinesiology oh, yeah. to help. Um, and she did get IV rosethin when she got there, they, based on all her labs, they also ran, I think it's Armin labs there. I, I can't remember. Um, but based on those labs too, they said she should do IV rosethin every day she's here. And so we did finally get that. So Ava, what was that like for you going to another country so sick to get treatment and then being bombarded with all these different therapies all at the same time? You know, I never, I didn't think about it like that. Uh, it was just necessary. I thought it was fun. Well, not funny. It, well, I, I didn't, I just thought about it very lightheartedly, I suppose, um, also, I had like really bad uh, eczema around my eye and they gave me the special cream for it because nothing else was working. And I do think that they're magic to some extent. Allegedly, I do think that they are fey. And I think that they are, well, I, I'm joking, but I just thought that was, why are they so good at their jobs? I'm not used to that. Oh, they, it was just a different experience when we went down there. Everybody was so validating. Everybody, um, you're herxing, right? You're, you're herxing from killing off all this bacteria. So they just, you're in a hospital. So she'd start feeling lightheaded yeah. and they'd be like, okay, let's give her some oxygen. Let's give you some saline. I mean, they just kind of knew how to take care of your reactions without judgment, with compassion, they knew what to do. And so that was kind of a new experience. I don't want to be as blunt as to say they actually cared. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot because I think that they actually genuinely wanted to help people and didn't just see them as a liability. This, okay, they had um, like a cliff area and there was just like a railing that was very easy to like jump over. Not that anyone would do that or should do that, but um, I feel like if it were like America or somewhere else, that would probably be illegal, I guess. And I just think it's interesting that they, I don't, they, they just see people as people and not liabilities, I guess. And that was very nice. And they didn't want, they didn't just want the symptoms to stop. They genuinely wanted you to get better 
and I once had a panic attack and this one lady was very nice and she took me out outside and we talked and she was just really nice and I feel like they really knew what they were doing mostly because they did have a really good emotional understanding of the patients because again they didn't see them as a liability they saw them as genuine people who needed help Ava talk to us about what it was like to get hyperthermia because it is a very extreme situation I, I believe they put you under right they actually knock you out and pump you up with yeah. antibiotics and and put you up to what I think 106 degrees and then they, they they take you out of that and you do that multiple times so what was that like for you going in and then coming out of the hyperthermia uh awake uh asleep and awake <laughs> I don't remember much but I the anesthesia was kind of fun I will say it it was I it was kind of Okay, well, not, okay, not like drugs, but it was kind of, I guess, relieving. Because I feel like with a lot of treatments, it's just sudden, like you just suddenly feel like a twinge of pain or something along those lines. But with hyperthermia, you just gradually fell asleep and then you woke up with a weird sunburn on your ankle, but it doesn't matter because you get to drink two pitchers of lemonade now. And they just, I don't want to say they made it fun, but they made it, relieving it didn't feel like this is so I mean it was a dire situation but it didn't feel like that it felt like I'm getting the help that I that I need and it's not just a something I have I mean I don't know how to explain it they just made it so that you felt like you're gonna be okay I guess so this was the most aggressive treatment you received which helped you get through Lyme, but yet you were the most comfortable you ever were because they looked at you as a human, they cared about you and they showed you compassion, it sounds like. Yes. So now when you're finally done at Santa Aviv and you're getting ready to come back to the States, uh, first from Ava's standpoint, how did you feel at that point? Were you already feeling symptom relief before you left? Yes. And that might just be from like a psychological standpoint of I'm better now and that makes me happy. But I do also think that it did make me better very quickly. And I, there is a, um, a period of like three to six months that where it takes you more time to recover. Woo. But I did feel better immediately, um, especially in terms of fatigue. And I think I was also just relieved to be able to go home. So I feel like that added to my happiness about coming home. Uh, hyperthermia is good for yeah. me, at least. Woo. We we did have a good experience Woo. with it. Um, and if anything, I just feel like we needed healing, but to, even between us, Whoa. you know, there's like a lot of the hallucinations of that period. It's just, I think she and I had our own level of like tra- traumatic trauma that like we kind of needed to like heal from. And I think that that um, was super helpful. But, you know, when she did come home, we still had so much to deal with. We had to deal with the mold. It was just, it's not, it's, you know, it's that whole saying that healing's not linear. It's, it's not. But did you finally have a glimpse of my daughter's getting better after you left Mexico? It sounds like you, that was the first time you saw some real tangible relief through her Lyme journey. Yes, I did feel extremely hopeful. Um, and I, 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 I believed, and I still believe that as far as Borrelia is concerned, she doesn't have it anymore. We still have to retest. And I think we are going to do it in August, but, um, that 
like the lime part, I believe is done and over with. And she, like I asked her too, like, how are your, do you have Lyme symptoms still? And she says, no. I do have um, lines and like marks from Bartonella still. Um, but they're not, they're not as bad, but uh, we, do, we have to do a test. Well, I think, I think with hyperthermia, it doesn't kill, you know, it's, it's hot enough to kill the Lyme bacteria, but not some of the co, the co-infections, but it, it does reduce that burden on your body and allows your body to start to fight the other things on its own. And it gives you a fighting chance. So that's why the, it sounds like the Bartonella is getting better, right? That's what I needed to do. I needed to lighten her load. That's, that was my whole intention. So Liza, talk to us more about mold, because if anybody knows about mold, it's definitely Michelle McKean on Lyme and Cancer Surface. She is the mold guru. And if I had mold issues or I suspected it, she'd be the person I'd go to. So walk us through what testing you did on your home before you left for Mexico, what testing you did on your children before you left for Mexico, and then what you did to remediate the mold problems once you got home from Mexico. Boy, okay, yes, mold. I, first, I wish more people would talk about, I wish the doctors would talk about it. Here's, here's me again, reaching out to Michelle from a podcast who then tells me about mold and it wasn't brought to my attention from these other practitioners. Right. So I did do, um, some testing. Um, I think it was ERMI testing by an organization. I was so desperate for answers and I was so pressed with urgency because I had already booked Santa Aviv and I was going to be bringing my daughter home to the same house. So I just went with this one um, company, which um, did the testing and it really cost me an arm and a leg. And it also did leave me with um, a lot more questions too. So, but, but I just did it, you know, like I just, I'm just, I, I just was so focused and, um, we did have mold in a crawl space, which was next to our HVAC system. And we had, um, a mycotoxin in our HVAC unit. So we had to like replace a lot of things. And my, I gave that task to my husband cause I was so burdened. Um, so that's for, as far as like our home, we, we, the big heart of it was remediating this crawl space and changing the HVAC unit. As far as my kids, they both did the great plains oat test mycotoxin test, glyphosate, you know, the whole biotoxin situation. And um, they both came back with mold. Uh, My son was mostly ridden with glyphosate. So, um, so we're kind of, we're on protocols for that now to still, you know, get that moving. Um, But, but as far as the mold, I st- Ava still wasn't getting better. She was kind of having a lot more reactions. So I brought in the mold dog. Are you familiar with the mold no. dog? No. This man has been on Animal Planet. He has um, two dogs. He's from Florida um, and he's not on social media. And I was on a Lyme Facebook group 
and they said, mole dog is, is doing a tour. It's only $500 for the dog to, to do your house, which in the world of mold and lime is nothing compared to the type of testing you have to do. So I brought the mole dog through my house and um, he had found mold in Ava's bathroom and also was suspicious about my son's bathroom. And the Ermi test that I had done previously found these areas suspicious as well. But the action plan was to like start opening walls and I, I couldn't go there based on suspicion. It's just a lot, you know? So when this mold dog came through my house and, and questioned her bathroom and my son's bathroom, then I brought in a hygienist, a mold hygienist. And if I were ever to do it over again, I would actually do the mold hygienist. It's more cost-effective and, um, and you get really good information. So you, are you saying you'd skip the Ermi test and the yeah. mold dog and go right to, okay. Yeah, I think I might um, because I mean, it's hard. I mean, I, I personally, if I were to do it again, I would do the mold dog so he can sniff out the questionable places and then bring in the hygienist um, because I did spend so much money on the um, Ermi testing just proportionately. It was just so much money. And I think you could do the same with a hygienist even, you know? So I don't know. That's just my mold experience. So, so walk us through. So I guess two questions, the mold dog. Yeah. How does he know, how does he indicate to you that there's a, a moldy area? Does he stop? Does he bark? Does he sit? What is the action that indicates I, that? To you? I should send you the video. It's, it's phenomenal. So his name is Sarge and he, the handler, I think his name was Dave, walks him through and he says, seek, seek seek. He smells under sinks. He smells in showers. He smells fabric on your furniture, um, you know, for a mold there. And if the dog sits, he, the command is show me, show me. And then the dog will point. Um, and that's it. Seek and show me. I mean this in the best way, but he definitely seems like a person who's from Florida. <laughs> what? I'm so that's the best way I can describe him. Yeah, he, yeah. But, um, it, but, it, but it sounds like he was very helpful for you to bring in a hygienist and look at those oh, areas, helpful. right? Because here's the thing about mold remediation. You have to do it in oh. stages. I got the report back and I showed it to my husband. I was like, make this happen. And he was like, Liza, this is not feasible. Like, this is not financially feasible. This is not... Um, logistically like and he, my husband told me straight up we're not going to shoot for a hundred percent like we're just going to have to be okay with like 90 percent and you know that was like a really hard time for us because you know i'm not going to leave anything any chance for my kids to be sick but i just had to surrender to okay but maybe we just have to go with 90 percent um, but so, so we did the HVAC system first and then the next phase we're like, okay, what else do we have to do? What are the other hidden areas? And, um, and that's what the mold dog helped me do when I brought in the hygienist and he did more testing, he was like, you just really need to like clean the caulk and reseal 
and regrout in your son's bathroom Whoa. based on testing. He's like in your daughter's bathroom. It's that window. It's that window in her shower has mold. So every time she takes a shower, this is creating a problem. So I was, um, so that's, that was like our last remediation. Um, and I, and I, and I think she's doing better. So what is a hygienist and, and how did you find this hygienist even know that they existed to come in and examine your home for mold and then recommend remediation? So how I got the hygienist was I contacted my LLMD in Chicago, Case Integrative, and I said, um, here's, you know, here's Ava's mold stuff. Um, I also have mold in my house. And she gave me a list of mold remediation companies that they're familiar working with, that they feel good about referring. When I called the mold remediation people and I told them I have these ERMI tests and I brought in a mold dog, um, they said, you need to bring in a hygienist. And it's interesting because the mold remediation people, they like, and this may just be where I live, they like the hygienist Ooh. data. So it was kind of one of those things where like I had all this ERMI stuff that cost me a lot of money and the remediation people still wanted the hygienist data. And here I am, I'm like, you need more data. Now, now I'm getting grumpy. You know, I'm a pleasant person, but I started throwing back some attitude. I was like, you need more testing? Like it's just, it's gotten ridiculous. It's costing me a lot of money. Um, but I did resign to just, you know, doing, taking down the samples and, and that's, and that's how I got um, the hygienist from the mold remediation company. So another parallel is Dr. Casey Kelly, Casey Integrative Health, who I guess is your, is now Ava's line litter doctor, it sounds like. Rich treated with her. We've interviewed her. We are, we know her very well. So another great resource for anybody looking for a Lyme specialist. And she does telehealth for those that are listening. Ava, from your standpoint, walk us through once your parents had all this mold resolved and you had the, the mold dog come in, you've had all the initial remediation done to your HVAC, HVAC system, and now you had your bathroom cleaned up. Were you feeling better? Were you noticing that you actually were feeling better once you got through all this cleanup of the mold in your home? I think my allergies got a little bit better is mostly what I noticed. I don't, I don't really. Well, what I notice is you're not on the cane. Yes. Um, I forgot about that. Whoa. Um, boom. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I attributed that more so to um, healing from Lyme, but I think that makes more sense that it's mold based on the timing. Yeah. So when we, oh, go ahead. So you, so, so Ava, you, you, you were using a cane to, to walk around. Is that what, what was happening? And then because of the mold remediation, you were able to stop using the cane? Uh, I believe so. I don't know if it's entirely because of the mold remediation. I also partially um, attribute that to say, say and such forth. But I do think that it is also part of the mold remediation now that that is brought up. And what symptoms are causing you to use a cane? Was it pain? You know, what, what was causing you to use that cane before you were able to walk around without it? Um, weakness, general weakness, uh, and my legs especially. Uh, I couldn't really move them very well. Um, and also it was difficult to just support my weight. So cane helps. Whoa. So really weakness and, and, you know, 
inability to really build, I guess, muscle and have strength in your body to walk around, it sounds like. And mold remediation helped you in that area, which I think is important for those listening that may be suffering with those symptoms still and wondering why they have residual symptoms like that. So it's probably a hard question to ask for both of you, but if you could give us an example, each of you, of how you were, Ava, at your worst from your Lyme symptoms, and now how you're able to do something that is completely opposite and, and different from that in a recovery standpoint to give our listeners hope that it is possible to recover from Lyme disease. I don't really know. I haven't exactly noticed a large difference between myself now and myself then. I guess we're also focusing on something else at the moment. So it's difficult to kind of consider myself fully healed to a certain extent. It just reflectively, I'm the same person that I was then and I am now. Do you feel physically better though, Ava? So as far as, you know, body pain, weakness, you feel much stronger, you feel better, you're able to do more things than you could before. Yes. I don't know how to describe it on an emotional level though. Do you feel emotionally healthier than you did when you were really sick from Lyme disease? Do you feel that emotionally you're a little bit healthier than you were then? I think we're still in it. We're still, again, like healing's not linear. And so um, it's been a lot, right? So we did the treatment, your traditional treatment. We did hyperthermia. We're going at the mold. Um, She's still on a mold protocol, but um, we are doing IVIG now too. I don't consider myself a healed person, I guess. Yeah, I consider we're still... myself healed from Lyme, mm-hmm. but there's still so much going on that I can't exactly consider myself better. I do think I healed from Lyme though. And it's complicated, right? It's so complicated. And I think it's very common with kids because, because I really speak to other moms and parents who are in this world of Lyme and pandas and pans and, and I know, and autoimmune encephalitis, there's like all of these other things, you know, that, that, um, happen to children and people, you know, in general. And so, um, I think that physically, um, some of the things I've seen is Ava is hanging out with friends again. Ava is, um, you know, more active and getting out of the house, but, uh, and going to school, um, these types of things. And this, and I have to just say throughout all of this treatment and all of the ups and downs of her condition, she's always done well in school. I don't know how she does it. She got all A's. She's always gotten all A's. It it was never a situation where like she, she loves school so much. It's been such a driving force to like, I want to be well enough to go to school. So that's just been so beautiful, but we are in this place of, um, now we are in IVIG. Um, And we're so fortunate enough that the nurse comes to our house and this is really for um, the brain inflammation, the autoimmune encephalitis, the, the immune, her immune system. Um, And also, you know, the Tourette's it's all, um, all of that combined. I don't know if it's from Lyme or that happened and that's how she, she was more susceptible to Lyme. You just never know. Right. 
Um, but we're still in the journey. Um, and it's, you know, it's just a different chapter. So Liza, talk to us about the beauty that you've seen on this journey and how are you a different and better person as a result of going on this journey with your children? Oh gosh. I mean, it, it definitely will change you as I don't have, you know, I've not been through treatment, but I am, um, I've really had to get it together as a parent so that I'm not a mess. I had been such a disaster in those early days. I was such a disservice to my children to not be a solid figure. And it's forced me to work on myself so that I can be empowered, so that I can be a rock, so that I can model regulation. Um, and I don't think I would have ever been that type of person had I not had this journey, you know, and to remain hopeful and practice gratitude. There's so many other parents that can celebrate like that fantasy of like, my kid scored two soccer goals. My kid, you know, is on traveling baseball, but we have like such amazing wins, you know, you know, my kid's gone through hypothermia. My kid's recovered from this program. I mean, like, I just, I know that Ava has more grit than any other kid her age from what she's been through. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of healing that takes place between all the family members too. And then like, as an individual, you know, we're all still healing. So talk to us about how this healing that you've gone on and the parental maturation that you've gone through has inspired you to become a podcaster and doing their outreach that you're doing. Yes. So I just, honestly, it was just one of those situations where I felt the need to share our story of isolation because I do believe there are so many more families living like this. And you don't talk about it. You don't talk about like the chronic illness. You don't talk about the mental illness. You don't talk about, you know, all these other things. And I just really wanted to share my story. Um, and that was my first season. It was just storytelling. And I got such tremendous response. And um, whatever your story is, whether it's Lyme or neurodivergency, like kids are struggling. And, and I really feel like... Um, parents need more stories of inspiration and, um, and validation and empowerment. And that's kind of where I see like my role, even in the Lyme world, because what you do and what so many other Lyme survivors and Lyme warriors do is they're so good at, um, getting you the resources you need and getting that community. That's really not my place. My place is to talk to the parents of like, get empowered you can do it. Be empowered. Get your head out of the sand. Open your eyes. This is happening. You know, your kids need validation and help and support in a different way that, that, that we're doing it. So that's kind of like, that's, that's my, that's my role in, in my community. And of course you would have never found that role had you not gone on the line journey that you've gone on with your children. Right. Exactly. So Ava, talk to us about the beauty that you found in this process, meaning how have you grown and what have you found out about yourself as a result of going on a Lyme disease journey? Um, 
well. I don't think I really learned anything from Lyme specifically. It's more so that I just learned from suffering in general. Not that I recommend suffering. I would recommend avoiding that. But I think it's more so learning to understand that there will always be a conflict. And if you try to go around each and every one of them, you won't be able to grow from it. So this this will sound masochistic, but I will say, if you are having a difficult time, sit in it and observe everything around you so that you can apply what you learn from that later on when there are other conflicts in life. Because if you don't appreciate what's going on while it's happening and you don't attempt to analyze it in that moment, you won't be able to apply that to conflicts later in life. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. And that's something that we've all had to do in my house is you have to sit through it. You know, that's where I was at the beginning of this journey, going around, not seeing it, right? Creating my own bubble of other parents and kids that kind of have quirks and little atypical. And I think what Ava's saying is like, you, you got to get through the suffering and the pain and, and really go through it and not dismiss it. And because that's, that is how you grow. Um, and so we've all in my family had to learn to sit with the discomfort, the physical discomfort, the mental discomfort. That's, that's what my children taught me. Truly. I did not learn that until my mid forties of like sitting with discomfort. You're in your mid forties. Yeah, you are. I, I thought you were in your twenties, Liza. So yeah. yes, I'm just teasing Ava. 10 years uh, old. So Ava, you, you've, you, I think you answered that question brilliantly because that really is my question. My question is what do you learn from the suffering that you can't learn anywhere else? Uh, and you picked up on that perfectly because you're right. Lyme itself doesn't teach you anything, but the suffering that you have to endure will teach you lessons that you can you cannot learn in any other way. So I, I, I thank you for answering that question so brilliantly. So let me ask the two of you my final question. And this is the final question I ask everyone on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. And that is, if God forbid, uh, Liza, your husband and Ava, your dad came walking into your room after we finished having this conversation and they had a tick biting him on his leg after he was doing some work in the yard, what would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a challenging Lyme disease journey. Get tested for Lyme disease. Well, take the tick off first, but get tested for Lyme disease and possibly take an antibiotic route first because my dad is very, like, um, in terms of immune system, very strong. So I don't know if it'd be exactly necessary for him to take any greater precautions aside from antibiotics, but definitely get tested first to check if you have Lyme and then go on a course of antibiotics. I would do the antibiotics. I would try to kick it with herbs. I mean, I got herbs in my house too. I would just, I would throw it at it. You know, those first 24 hours, get on some herbs, boost the immune system. I would get the C, the D, the zinc, maybe put like, um, what's that clay on it? And maybe, yep. And a castor oil pack that night, castor oil, um, and, and, um, detox. And I, I would get on an antibiotic. I would call the doctor and I would say truly, and I, and people have asked me this, parents have come to me from their lake house in Wisconsin and said, I just took a tick off of my son. What should I do? And I do say, call the pediatrician, everything's telehealth. And I'm like, you have to say like, you know, 
my son's telling me he has joint pain. He's, you got it. You got it. You, because they won't give it to you and, and, and try to get the antibiotic. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with our guests, Liza Blas and Ava Passiorelli. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Liza and Ava, please visit Liza's Instagram page at Liza's Very Happy Stories. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your kindness of commenting on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you as always for listening.